and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 12. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm here as always with esteemed liberal commentator Toby Young. Coming up on the show, Trump is back on Twitter along with many others back from the dead. The virtue signaling World Cup begins and the Tories deliver an absolute Jeremy Hunt of a budget. All that and more, plus of course our weekly roundup with Will Jones and the nation's favourite podcast segment, Peak Woke. But Toby, uh, we had a slight disagreement. I wanted to start with the... Twitter unbannings, because this is the big story in my world, but you pulled rank and said we have to start with the World Cup, which I've kind of ignored, but it is obviously a big story. There's a lot going on. More interestingly, off the pitch than on, really. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess in my world, the World Cup is quite big because I've got three teenage sons and they're all kind of quite interested in it. Um, And, you know, there's been a number of kind of um, talking points so far. So there was... um, there was the president of FIFA's speech denouncing 3,000 years of colonial oppression um, as a reason why um, the Europeans were in no position to lecture the Qataris about human rights abuses. Um, and uh, that struck me as a pretty unreasonable position to take. Um, uh, uh, I mean, you know, it it certainly isn't true that the Europeans um, invented, you know, colonialism. um, There are many empires um, which predate um, any European empires, um, such as the Carthaginian Empire, the Kushite Empire, the Egyptian Empire, and so forth. Uh, They didn't. The Europeans didn't invent slavery either. I'm sure I'm 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 not telling you anything you don't already know. But um, (laughs) some of the oldest known slave societies were, you know, uh, the Mesopotamian and Sumerian civilizations, located, funnily enough, in the Middle East, not very far from. Qatar. And of course, um, I wanted to make the point, had I been at that press conference, uh, when when the journalists were allowed to ask questions, which I believe wasn't for after a a 56 minute monologue, I would have pointed out that between 1530 and 1780, over a million white Christian Europeans were enslaved by the Muslims of the Barbary Coast. So in fact, if anything, it should have been the Qataris apologising to us and not vice versa for slavery, etc. But uh, it's just you in that press pack. Yeah, it did seem like such a silly argument. I mean, um, you know, if if you if your country has ever been guilty of human rights abuses, then you cannot criticize other countries for human rights abuses. I mean, on that basis, you know, um, uh, after voting to abolish slavery, which I imagine would have been taboo anyway, given our involvement in the slave trade by, you know, the president of FIFA's standard, we wouldn't have been able to commit blood and treasure to ending the Atlantic slave trade. Because, you know, who were we to lecture other countries on their involvement in the slave trade, given our involvement in the slave trade? I mean, on, on that basis, you'd never make any progress when it came to, you know, improving respect for human rights across the world. I mean, it just seemed like such a, an idiotic, defeatist argument. Clearly, he was just trying to do the bidding of his Qatari paymasters and placate them because they were fed up with all the criticisms, all the attention that's been drawn to Qatar's human rights abuses. Um, so, uh, and, and it's been, um, the Qataris are clearly on an absolute hair trigger. Um, and there's this big battle for kind of control going on between FIFA and, you know, Qatar. And the reason alcohol, the reason there was a reverse ferret on serving alcohol in the concourses outside the stadiums um, uh, was because um, 
the Qataris clearly decided at the last minute that they weren't having it, you know, because they wanted to assert control. Even though FIFA had done this kind of massive deal with Budweiser, FIFA had to kind of back down. And I imagine, you know, they were doing the bid. FIFA was doing the bidding of the Qataris at that press conference. And also there was the whole big brouhaha over the wearing of the um, One Love armband. Can we get onto that in a sec? Can I just... Can I just add yeah. something about the press conference first? Because people, in case everyone, I'm sure everyone saw it, but you're referring to the, the long, ridiculous speech where he said, today I feel gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel like a migrant worker. And everyone's like, what are you on about? And this was Gianni Infantino, which someone pointed out sounds like a, a generic name for an Italian baby if you tried to make one up. <laughs> but there was just a really, everyone saw this absurd speech where he said, I feel gay and so on. And I just wanted to point out this tweet, which is my favorite sort of parody tweet of it. Someone wrote, he drinks a Qatari drink, he drinks an Arab drink, he drinks an African drink, he, he drinks a gay drink, he sings the songs that remind him of the disabled times, he sings the songs that remind him of the migrant worker times, <laughs> to me, was my favourite parody of that absurd uh, speech, but... Then go on, Toby, to the um, armband. And I was going to go to the one, the, the, the one love armband. So um, uh, the um, I- I- English Football Association, along I think with nine other football associations, had agreed to. Um, uh, they were going to stage a protest, um, a very mild and toothless protest, whereby they were going to insist or, or ask the captains of their respective teams to wear the um, One Love armband, which has a kind of something like a kind of rainbow design. Um, and uh, and was, was in, it was a campaign originally started by the Dutch Football Association. Um, anyway, um, so they were planning to wear these armbands in this kind of toothless kind of gesture of a protest. But even that was too much for the Qataris <laughs> at the last minute. FIFA said, um, we're, we're advising, you know, our associate members not to ask their captains to wear the armbands. And if they do, they will be given a yellow card. So if uh, Kane, for instance, wore the armband in the first two matches of the World Cup, he'd be banned from playing in the third during the kind of uh, group stages. And this was thought to be far too far too high a price to pay uh, for standing up in the mildest way possible for LGBTQ rights. Uh, and so, of course, the uh, Football Association, the English Football, completely surrendered and Kane wore um, uh, another meaningless armband I- I- instead. Um, but it contrasts the behaviour, you know, of English footballers and the English Football Association with the Iranian national team, who actually staged a meaningful protest at the beginning of their game against England, in which they refused to sing the Iranian national anthem. Um, You know, that that could see them imprisoned, possibly killed, when they return to Iran, um, assuming, you know, the protests don't succeed in overthrowing the theocratic regime. Um, uh, So that was that took real courage. And that was genuinely meaningful. Uh, And it just seemed it just seemed to, I thought, show up our knee taking footballers uh, without their armbands, you know, trying to kind of register some kind of protest about the lack of respect for LGBTQ plus rights, you know, when something really important is going on in Iran and the Iranian team really did risk everything to stage a genuine, meaningful protest. Yeah. And the other contrast, of course, well, and there's, there's a couple more contrasts in there. One is that the England team kneeled while the Iranians didn't sing the anthem and they're kneeling. It's quite strange. It's like, why are we still kneeling for an unfortunate uh, American who died of a drug overdose two years ago? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really seem to make any sense to me at this point. Though I looked on YouTube and there were lots of comments under the kneeling from people saying, thank you for standing in solidarity with, with Iran and with Persians. I'm like, is, is that what they're doing? I mean, that, no, one really, the, uh, no one really knows uh, anymore. They just like kneeling at this point. And um, the yeah. other contrast, of course, was with Alex Scott then going out and wearing the armband on the pitch 
as as a pundit and everyone's saying how amazing and brave she was. I mean, she was certainly more brave than Harry Kane. And I know it's the normally sort of pundit thing to say she was very brave, but equally I was kind of a bit over this gesture as well. I'm kind of, it is, it is more risky. I mean, she's actually done it, but at the same time, someone then pointed to a picture of her in Dubai another time saying, well, you were in Dubai anyway, and they have the similar views about homosexuality and stuff. And I don't know, what did you think to Alex Scott wearing the armband? Yeah, I wasn't. I, I mean, I, I, I think it's one thing for, you know, um, the footballers to wear the armband. I'm not sure I want BBC commentators to <laughs> uh, uh, take up any particular politically contentious positions. I mean, it's not that politically contentious, but it's still political. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to make a complaint to the BBC about this being a breach of impartiality guidelines, but still wasn't too <laughs> impressed. Um, uh, did you see that uh, on, on Qatari state television, Gary Neville um, made good on his promise yeah. to Ian Hislop to raise Qatar's human rights record whilst commentating for Qatari state television. And of course, they didn't broadcast it. They it just was deleted. The tweet was, was deleted. deleted by BN Sports, who were owned by the Qatari government. <laughs> and he said, like, and he was, he was criticizing the Infantino idiot um, FIFA guy for his speech. And they just deleted it. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's absolutely ridiculous. Neville has come out of this so badly. So badly. One of my heroes uh, growing up. And just absolutely <laughs> pathetic. Yeah, no, he's, he's not, hasn't come out covered in glory. Um, I don't know if you know, did he watch the England Iran game? Do you know what? And I'm a lifelong football fan, as we discussed last week. But I, but this World Cup, I don't care to the point where I actually forgot about the game completely. But I had an appointment anyway, so I wouldn't have been able to watch it. And I did watch the highlights, and obviously we won six two. And our team does actually look good. I mean, Iran aren't any good, but we you know we are looking quite good. It'd be annoying if we won this one, the, the first World Cup I've ever not cared about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought they looked quite good too. But one of the interesting things about the game was that whenever England scored, and they scored a lot, um, the, 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 the director never cut to footage of the England fans celebrating, and, and, you know, which is you know, what they always do. And the, when Iran scored twice, they cut immediately to the Iranian fans celebrating. But for some <laughs> reason, it was considered too risky by, you know, Al Jazeera. Or who, in case they were doing actually. gay stuff. In, in the, case they were doing the, gay the stuff. Yeah, yeah. In case they were snogging. <laughs> Two men were snogging on the terraces or someone was wearing a rainbow headband. Uh, oh, yeah, it was just that's ridiculous. Hilarious. Yeah. But, um, and, and I watched the Qatar, Qatar game as well. And they were really bad. And they lost to uh, Ecuador, but there was and it was a very dodgy. I missed this actually, but it was a very dodgy offside decision. And you're like, mm. yeah. And I just thought I was watching it, thinking, looking at all these Qataris looking distraught in the um, in the stands, and I was thinking, they're not going to let this team just keep having humiliating losses. Someone's going to step in and do something. You know what I mean? I was, I was like, will they allow this to happen? I don't know. I, was, I just wondered if some rigging was going to start to happen. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think they, I think they're according to according to my sons um, when um, Saudi Arabia beat Argentina in what will probably be the biggest upset of the competition. This was earlier today. So incredibly, um, Saudi Arabia beat Argentina uh, 2-1. And my sons immediately thought, well, the fix is in, obviously. You know, it's match fixing. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, questionable, uh, isn't it? And it, it could be that if, if you do what, if you do, if, if the Arab world wants to emerge from this tournament with some dignity and pride, they couldn't fix the Qatari games because that would be too obvious. So instead, they've decided to fix the Saudi Arabia games. Who knows? But it didn't look like it was fixed. I didn't, wouldn't watch all of it. But uh, I'd, I'd be worried if I was... Um... If I was in the Qatari team, do you remember when Escobar led in that own goal? I think it was the own goal in the, for Colombia, and he, he got shot shortly after. Yes, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. If I was, I'd be, I'd be wary of taking the Saudi shilling if I was, um, yeah, messy, uh, knowing the fate that might await me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's leave that speculation there before we get in legal trouble, and let's move on yes. to. Did you see this Badil versus Jason Lee story? While we're on football, we'll get to Twitter in a minute. But this is very interesting because back in the day, there was a show called Fantasy Football League. I'm sure many of our listeners know. It was a very funny show, and it was Badil and Skinner, and David Badil would wear blackface. And you can argue, was he wearing blackface or just doing a specific character? Or is there any difference? I mean, you know, is there any difference between imitating a character versus the black and white minstrel show? There may be, but not much of a difference perhaps to some. So he would wear blackface and he would do this impression of Jason Lee and he'd have a pineapple literally on his head because of Jason Lee's hairstyle that resembled to some a pineapple and not to others. And and they, there was this chant, he's got a pineapple on his head and then people would chant that at Jason Lee and they had all these sketches about it. Now, David Badil has apologized 25 years too late, but um, he's got in there with his apology. And it's because, now a cynic would say, we already talked about this on Headliners and Josh chastised me, but a cynic might say it's because David Badil has a show out about the, how Jewish people are victims of anti-Semitism, including him, and I'm sure he does get a lot of nasty stuff on Twitter and elsewhere. And he's got this show, so he now needs to have his virtue intact and, and Jason Lee's come out and said, well, what about this? And other people have said, well, what about this? Now Badil's done this meeting with him where he apologizes. And a, a cynic would also say Jason Lee's just launching his podcast. Uh, it's quite a lot of publicity for him. He calls himself an equalities executive now. And he did a nine-tweet thread about all this, talking about allying and allyship and all this. So he's he's gone woke, and, or maybe he already was woke. And he's kind of milk. My take is that they're both milking it for sort of, it's it's sort of hustle for both of them because David Badil gets to promote his show, Jason Lee gets to promote his podcast, and they all just apologize to each other in a kind of weird lefty, I don't want to say the phrase circle something that I'm not very interested in any of it. But I don't know. Am I too cynical, Toby? So do you, do you think do you think they might have staged it in order to promote each other's kind it's of? It's not that they've projects? staged it, but it's just that they're both sort of it's lefties sort of talking to each other about stuff. I mean, look, I, I've never done blackface, so like. You know, I don't have to feel guilty. People did laugh at it back in the day, but now you've got all these people tweeting, oh, we we laughed and we were wrong and I feel bad now. And it's like, that doesn't do anything for me either. So we get virtue signaling people regretting it. You've got Badil claiming to regret it, but he still did it. You've got Jason Lee saying, well, why didn't you apologize earlier? Which is fair enough. You know, he probably, I'm sure it was very upsetting to be a footballer and have that shouted at you constantly. I'm not going as far as saying it's staged. But, I'm just saying it works out well for yeah. both of them in a, in a you, way. You, surely, what is David Beale? I haven't seen this, but what, what has David Beale, Badil apologised for? Has he apologised for dressing up in blackface and um, referring to Jason Lee's hairstyle as a pineapple? Or has he just apologised for dressing up in blackface? Because, uh, you know, w- when I go to QPRs, pe- the, the fans still sometimes chant about, you know, um, the visiting players, if they've got stupid haircuts, you've got an SH1T effing haircut. That's that's a chant. Or you've got a pineapple on your head. Um, but it's also, you know, um, it, 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 I've noticed that those chants are disproportionately aimed at players of colour, but not exclusively so. Uh, and I hadn't thought of them as particularly racist chants. I suppose, you know, pineapple on your head, if they've got kind of dreads piled up. Um, that was your white uh, privilege, it, it, Toby. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I mean, do you think of the chant, you've got a pineapple on your head, as a racist chant, even if you're not in blackface when you're chanting it? I don't, but, you know, I'm I'm just a protected white privileged person. I mean, so to answer your other question, uh, Jason Lee's podcast pro- tweets, it's been 25 years since Badil and Skinner's Fantasy Football League 
included sketches impersonating me in blackface. Yes, the sketches were racist, culturally offensive, and bullying. Badil rightfully accepts this now. And Badil wrote, I do, and wish, therefore, to share this thread. And, you know, fair enough, he's admitting it now, but I, I can't help but find it all a bit, a bit nauseating. Later on in the thread, Jason Lee says, I believe we must all do the work to better understand the experience of others, which is why I'm committed to allyship for all communities facing discrimination. I mean, all fine, but it's all just woke rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, the, black, um, the blackface like... isn't woke rubbish. I see that blackface is offensive, and I've never done. I've never done it. Now, but I get lectures from David Badil on Twitter all the time. Not me personally, but we all do about various topics. But he's the one that's done blackface. But now he has to go through this apology tour to to justify his position of lecturing us all the time. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I I once had a debate, um, a public debate with David Badil about um, the use of the um, term "yiddos" by Tottenham fans. So I was I was um, I was defending it on the grounds that, you know, whilst it would be offensive if you were describing, you know, somebody else uh, with the Y word, um, uh, if you were proclaiming to be a Yiddo yourself and kind of making announcing your solidarity with, you know, the persecuted Jewish people, then that wasn't racist. That was, you know, that was that was something that should be welcomed. Um, by the Jews. Um, but he, he completely disagreed. He thought it eff- effectively kind of legitimized um, a racial epithet, which could then be used with impunity by others in the wrong context. And, um, you know, yes, uh, so, so that's that his uh, argument. It's the same as black people with the N word in rap, isn't it? I went to a Tottenham game with someone and they, yeah, they use a shortened version of that word in a kind of quite like a effective chant. It's kind of like quite almost like scary chant that they, they say it really, it's like a kind of, orc-like chant at the time which was really powerful i was like wow this is a good chant but i can because but they're taking back the word as you say but yeah i know i remember the deal yeah. disagreed i suppose i suppose, I suppose the, I think the deal's argument was it would be okay if all the fans y- y- using that chant were in fact jewish um to object to them using that word would be to object to a black person using the n-word to describe themselves you know or using it in a rap video or in a movie um uh which would obviously you know be ridiculous but um his problem was that some of the fans were were, were claiming you know we're using this word and self-identifying um as the y word but they weren't actually jewish so therefore it was illegitimate and racist or something yeah like well I, I i hasten to add i didn't sing it but then again i'm i'm not even a tottenham fan so it never would never <laughs> would have come up i mean man united fan he was there as a guest so uh it didn't i didn't have to face that dilemma but it does remind me just quickly there's a quarterback just this week lost his scholarship, a young quarterback lost his scholarship because he used the N-word in a song. And people are saying, well, how can it be that he loses his scholarship when it's in the song? And a very similar thing happened when Kendrick Lamar brought a young woman up on stage and she sang his song. He then stopped her and called her racist on stage for singing the lyrics <laughs> in the song. So, we, And Candace Owen said it's ridiculous because it is kind of bizarre. We have this thing, only one group of people are allowed to say this word constantly and then other people say it and their lives are over. So this is a strange tension we have but um i don't know if we're going to resolve it today uh do you want to move on to twitter toby because this is the um, big one yeah let's move on to twitter and I, I know you've got quite a lot to say about that I, I have noted that um donald trump in spite of being let back on has announced that he's not going to come back on um yeah. i guess he's slightly concerned about um truth social 
Um, because, you know, if, if he's now allowed back on Twitter, what's the unique selling point of Truth Social? So, you know, for commercial reasons, he has a good incentive not to go back on. Yeah, well, apparently he may even have a fiduciary responsibility to Truth Social and may not actually be allowed to come on Twitter. That's a new part of it that I hadn't considered before. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a no-brainer to get on Twitter. He's got the election coming up. It would be so tempting for him. I don't know what his legal responsibilities are. The idea that he, you know, if, it's, if, if there's not a legal issue, he obviously should do it. But yeah, he said, oh, Truth has amazing engagement and we don't need to go back on Twitter. Obviously, silly. If he can do it, he should. And I'm sure everyone's seen this, but it was done via a poll where Elon Musk put out a poll. He said, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. And he let the people decide. And it was a it was 52% to 48. We've seen that somewhere before. It was, it was actually 51.9, roughly, apparently. And so thus he held his word and put Trump back on. It was an amazing moment. It almost feels like a long time ago already because so much more has happened since, which we'll get onto. But Sadiq Khan did an absolutely pathetic response, calling Trump a far-right politician, thus insulting all the 75 million Americans who voted for him. Absolutely appalling. Then said, free speech is vital, but, that classic but, but my enemies must be censored and shut down, said that he, Trump shouldn't be on Twitter. So absolutely disgusting from Khan and, and what would be used to from him. Guy Verhofstadt, EU dweeb, also vehemently against it. No surprise there, someone in the EU not liking a democratic election. And Sam Harris notably was against it as well with some very weak arguments about not amplifying hate and all this kind of stuff. Then some people pointed out that he had amplified Sam Bankman fried with his misinformation and, uh, you know, with his dodgy FTX currency. So Glenn Greenwald, I'll just quickly add, made a... Very interesting point saying the leader of Mexico has said Trump should be back on. And he said, remember, world leaders around the world have said that Trump should be back on. It's only our sort of hardcore, deranged libs that that say they shouldn't. World leaders have have said he should in many cases. And I'll just finally add, Toby, that the nine-inch nails guy, Trent Reznor, has left. And Jack White has taken his record label off saying that uh, Elon Musk is, you know, enabling fascism or whatever rubbish. And it's another case of these establishment rock stars being absolute dweebs yeah so so much for them being rebels they're now kind of establishment lackeys aren't they it's bizarre um but hopefully their protest will be no more effective than the um spotify protest to try and persuade spotify to no platform joe rogan yeah and there was also the jonathan greenblatt from the adl i don't know if you saw this he was uh, t- saying how terrible it was that, that Musk had let Trump back on. And he's, of course, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. And so Elon Musk wrote, stop defaming me, which was quite funny. <laughs> and Greenblatt even said this. He said, um, Elon Musk's decisions over the last month have been erratic and alarming, but this decision is dangerous and a threat to American democracy. We need to ask, is it time for Twitter to go? And it's just funny because I've been watching, re-watching The Wire. And that was like, to me, that was like, like gangster level it's like he got to go you know when someone does something wrong they they just they say he gotta go i was like what do you mean twitter has twitter got to go are you just going to shut it down do you have that kind of power so i mean are you pleased that trump's back on yeah i am pleased i think um you know if 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 twitter is going to become the digital well i think it was in his argument that twitter has become the kind of digital town square so if it is the digital town square then you know it's important to have you know um someone on it that 75 million people voted for um, because otherwise we're not going to have, you know, a proper discussion. Um, yeah, this this idea that people need to be protected um, from certain forms of speech um, or certain certain things which because they're, they're misinformation. I mean, there used to be this overwhelming consensus amongst the kind of 
global liberal elite that the best way to counter bad speech was not with not to suppress it, but with more better speech. And I think that argument still applies. But what's bizarre is that the you know global liberal elite have now done a complete 180 on that. And they now think it's perfect that the best way to deal with the potentially harmful effects of you know bad speech, whether it's hate speech or misinformation, however they describe it, is to ban it, uh, not to counter it with more and better speech. You know, it's like, uh, what it, wh- why don't you want to engage in a discussion and debate. If you think that what Trump says is hateful, um, or if you think it's 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 misleading, then, you know, rebut it in the digital town square. Uh, don't try and just stop him from being able to speak. It's mad. Yeah, absolutely. And even more excited, I mean, I was very excited when Trump came back on, but then he also reinstated Jordan Peterson just before he reinstated Trump. He reinstated the Babylon B. He reinstated the top G, Andrew Tate, which was huge which almost hasn't been talked about that much, although it was trending at one point. He even brought back Kathy Griffin. Fair enough, you know, mm-hmm. let her come on and spout her nonsense. Kanye came back on and tweeted Shalom quite provocatively. And of course, my mate Carl, Sarg- the mighty Sargon of Akkad is back. And this is the most recent because this just happened late last night to the point where Carl didn't even know about it. And I said to him, um, I said, he probably won't mind me saying, I said, um, looks like you're back on Twitter. And he said, no, I'm not, lol. And I was like, really? It looks like your handle is last tweets for 2017. And I actually thought it was him. Then he went, I think I'm back. How crazy is that? And I was like, you're welcome. And I, <laughs> he said, this is wild. And I said, we're not used to winning. He said, we're, we're really not. And I was like, let the winning commence because it's a great new era. And I said to him, actually, I felt like Goodfellas. You know, when he says, uh, Tommy getting made, it was like, we're all getting made. But I just thought somebody said, Carl back on there. Even though I don't do Lotus Eaters that much. I'm there occasionally. I just thought like, it's like, we're all back. And um, it was just really exciting, even though I was never gone. It's just exciting. <laughs> and, um, and it's massive that Sargon's back because so many people, he has so many fans around the world. And in this country, he's more controversial because we're sort of such a sort of lefty country. But, you know, Pete Jordan Peterson's welcomed him back. Brett Weinstein is a, a big lefty. Tim Poole, all these people. So there's so many people who are, who are glad to see Carl back on there. And it's, and it's quite interesting, the evolution Carl's gone through in the five years he's been off because... His old account described himself as an anti-identitarian liberal YouTuber, whereas now he's back. He's and instead of being Sargon, he's Carl. And instead of uh, that bio, he just put Englishman. So Carl's got more into in the time he's been off. He's got more into this idea of like English culture and what are our cultural values of things like free speech. And he he sort of evolved his thinking. And he's a bit less perhaps he's a bit less liberal though he still is really a, a classical. English liberal, but what do you think to any of these people being reinstated, Toby? I guess you're in favour of all of it. Yeah, I'm in favour of all. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I, 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 you'd have to, you'd have to be. I mean, you'd have to be pretty beyond the pale, I think, um, uh, to, to, you know, for me to think that there was no place for you on Twitter. You know, if if Hitler suddenly came back, you know, to life, um, or or maybe Mussolini, or possibly Oswald Mosley, um, you know, I might, I might draw the line at them. Um, but uh, actually, one thing we know from um, the, 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 the really good book on a history of free speech by Jacob Matcham Garma, and he makes the point that there, w- there were various attempts to suppress actual Nazis in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. And, you know, at various different points, um, Der Stormer and I think Goebbels's newspaper were banned. Um, and for several years, um, Hitler was banned from several German states. So there was this concerted effort. There were uh, anti-hate speech laws in place. Um, 
uh, laws preventing people from being anti-Semitic. You know, there was the kind of suppression of this kind of toxic speech was widespread in Weimar Germany. Um, and in, in, instead of um, uh, stopping the Nazis' rise to power, um, if anything, it helped it. It enabled the Nazis to pose as free speech martyrs, as people, you know, who had these inconvenient truths that uh, the authorities didn't want people to hear. Um, so it had the opposite of its intended effect. Um, so yeah. even, if, even if you are, you know, a committed anti-fascist and you think that um, these ideas that people like um, Andrew Tate and um, Carl Benjamin are, 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 are expressing are dangerous, then you should be in favour of letting them back onto Twitter because um, that's the best way to detox, to, 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 to neuter them and to render them impotent because suppressing them has the opposite effect. Yeah. And, and then we come to the question of Alex Jones. I mean, you talk about where is the line of people who should be banned Elon Musk has drawn it at Alex Jones. People say you have to bring him on. He said no. He said tough. And he cited, I can't find a tweet here, but he, he, he cited, he was inferring, he was implying that, that it was Sandy Hook was the reason, even though actually Alex Jones was banned for insulting this journalist, Oliver Darcy. But Musk talked about, he, he used a biblical quote about suffer little children. And then someone questioned him on it again. He said, Look, my, my newborn son died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. Anyone who tries to make gain out of the suffering of children is I have no mercy for. And it was quite a, what it was was an, you could certainly appreciate emotionally, you could certainly empathize with it, and it was certainly a heartbreaking story. But what it ultimately was was an argument from emotion. He was just saying I had this experience, so Alex Jones shouldn't be back on. Of course, Alex Jones is a father. Alex Jones has apologized for his remarks about Sandy Hook many times. It was a it was a bad misunderstanding. And um, it's not like Alex Jones is is in favor of the suffering of children or something. And I just find this a slightly, it's an unfair yeah. line of attack to me. I mean, people said it to me about defending Alex Jones. They said, someone said to me, if you were a father, you wouldn't do it. And I'm like, that's what well, I just don't care about children because I'm not a father. I thought it was a, not a good argument. Yeah, and I think, I think it was unwise of Elon Musk to make that argument for not lifting the ban on Alex Jones because it essentially um, confirmed the allegations that, critics of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter have made, which is that, you know, it'll become a one person dictatorship. Um, and there won't be, you know, it, it'll be it'll be a universe in which the rule of law no longer applies. It's just, you know, it, it's at the whim of the supreme ruler, um, whether you're allowed on the platform or not. And he seemed to be confirming that, um, which is which I would have thought was a silly thing to do. He, he should instead introduce, you know, rules and say they're going to be consistently applied and here's the rationale for introducing these rules rather than saying well I like him he can come back on or we had a poll conducted by me nothing remotely representative or democratic about it but we had a poll and that went in Donald Trump's way so he can go I mean he's just he's behaving like a kind of tin pot dictator and turning Twitter into a bit of a banana republic which is something we hoped he wouldn't do yeah I said exactly that but I concluded still the Musk dictatorship is far more benign than the last one so it is That's still a true. dictatorship, yeah. but he's it's not a better yeah, he's, one. <laughs> it, yeah, he's he's a he's a benign dictator. He's and he's you know, there's an element of kind of comedy and sort of um, self deprecation to it all, which which makes it sort of you know faintly more palatable. Um, yeah, but yeah, dictatorship is a dictatorship, whether benign or not, and not as oh. not as I prefer a democracy. On the comedy point, Carl made the, the point that Musk is, a, is is of Generation X, which I identify as. Some things put me at the start of millennial, but. Certainly, I feel more Generation X, and I pretty much am growing up in the country. I may be the first millennial, but we were so behind the times anyway. Basically, it's a more ironic 
uh, more humor based. That's why he loves funny memes and stuff. It's quite a good point. He comes from a different generation where you poke fun at things, you know, on the humor side. But on on the children's side, another interesting point though, he is dedicated to defending children, which is great. I mean, he's 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 getting rid of sort of very dubious, you know material on twitter and made that priority so this eliza person here and this is a big topic for her and she puts i'm overwhelmed with joy to see elon musk the ceo and owner of twitter say that he's making the removal of child sexual abuse material on twitter priority number one and this is something that the the libs who hate musk and say oh we're quitting we're taking our music off and all this rubbish they don't care about this they're they're ignoring this thing that he's actually he's gonna he's gonna cut which twitter should have done anyway he's gonna crack down on child sexual abuse but no one's giving him any credit for that because he has the wrong politics yeah that's um yeah it is something that twitter should have done long ago um but yeah he's not going to get credit for much from liberals i don't think um uh you know um uh, whatever he does uh, and i think he sort of realizes that i mean i think he's sort of uh you know, uh, one one of his attractive characteristics is that he he doesn't virtue signal. He doesn't seem to set much store by the kind of good opinion of his liberal critics. He doesn't spend much time trying to win them over, which is uh, which is a refreshing change. Yeah. All right. We're about halfway. So do you want to do our advert, Toby? Yes, let's do our ad. It's um, from our usual sponsor, Thor Holt. I know Thor personally. He's provided pro bono support to people the Free Speech Union has been working with since we launched, and he'd like to connect with you, especially if you run a business and you're firefighting in challenging times. Because when Thor isn't supporting FSU members in the eye of a Twitter storm, he helps businesses through tricky times. For example, an SME facing 20% redundancies worked with Thor and within four months landed £20.4 million worth of new contracts, avoided redundancies and secured a 10-year project pipeline. And uh, Thor has included a personal note for you, Weekly Skeptic listener. And I'm now I'm actually going to do it in Thor's Scottish accent just for a change. Are you a weekly sceptic listener who's thought about getting in touch but haven't had time because you're too busy firefighting? If so, I'm talking to you. In my experience, business has been a challenging place for freethinkers since 2016. A regrettable lack of individuals able to speak their mind on many hot-button issues. Brexit, climate, ESG investing, or whatever diversity gruel of the day is dished up by the HR. And now, in 2022, coming out as a free thinker in the business meeting can be as risky as donning your Trump 2024 cap and heading down to the HR department. It's straight to diversity and inclusion re-education for you. It is what it is, but I believe we should focus on what we can control. After all, even in this crazy cultural moment, there are deals to be done and business missions. <laughs> I'm laughing because Nick's laughing. I'm going to carry on. It is what it is, but I believe we should focus on what we can control. After all, even in this crazy cultural moment, there are deals to be done and business missions to deliver against. As your executive coach or non-exec director, I will bring positive challenge, fresh perspective and genuine performance boost to your business. You'll be more focused and your business, whether a one-person limited company or a full-blown SME, will win more deals, create more value and enjoy the process with a fellow free thinker on your team. Put my business firefighting skills to the test with a complimentary skeptic business owner discovery call. Connect on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.com forward slash in forward slash Thorholt. That's all one word. And quote, skeptic discovery call. 
to claim your 100% discount on my standard discovery call value of £225. It's not often a Scotsman offers you a discount. Please do take advantage of it. That's linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thor Holt. All one word. Okay, there we are. What do you think of my my brother? <laughs> brilliant impression. If you knew him, you'd be you'd be you'd be sitting there in open mouthed astonishment at how uncannily so long my impression was. It went on so <laughs> long. I, I felt you regretting it about halfway through, and it just like kept <laughs> going. Was, he started yeah, sounding like Michael Gove yeah. at one point. <laughs> it, it reminded me of I once gave an after I once gave a best man speech at my best friend's wedding in America, and. I could tell within seconds that I totally misjudged it, hadn't read the room, and it was all going down like a cup of cold sick. But I just couldn't, I couldn't, because I'd embarked, I was like being on a railway track. I couldn't get off the track, and I went on for like 45 minutes. It was just, I, I got the flop sweat, you know, when he stopped. You should have done the accent. Yeah, and that would have helped, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was brilliant. That was actually weirdly the best bit of the podcast. Um, <laughs> even the adverts are entertaining here, folks. <clears throat> okay. All right, let's go to Will Jones for our roundup of the week's top stories. So I'm here with Will, editor of The Daily Skeptic. And Will, very interesting story here. The case against punishing those who locked us down. I mean, I want more punishment, but this is a case against. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's right, Nick. We all want uh, punishment and accountability for those who have uh, inflicted so much horror and suffering on us the last uh, several years over this virus, which really was not anywhere near as harmful as they uh, keep telling us and made out. But uh, we've published an article this week by an economics professor from the US um, who says that he his blood also boils at the idea of what was done to us. And he too once has a visceral desire for punishment. However, he sets out a very well-argued and eloquent case uh, that, um, that this would not be a good idea because any court or any such tribunal would be inevitably political, he says, and it would basically be like the obverse, the reverse of cancel culture. And so he argues against the idea of holding individuals personally and legally criminally accountable. He wants there to be accountability. He wants us to learn the lessons and learn the right lessons, which it doesn't look like we're going to do from the inquiry, unfortunately. But but he makes uh, an argument against the idea of banging them up and executing them or whatever uh, everyone uh, understandably wants to do. So it's um, it's a controversial argument, um, kind of similar to the uh, to the amnesty argument. But he's not looking for he's not looking for an amnesty in the sense of forgive and forget. But uh, he is suggesting that we should while well, we should learn lessons and learn what not to do again. Uh, that maybe we shouldn't uh, create the kind of cancel culture political tribunals that uh, we don't want in other spheres either. Yeah, he makes a good point. Can you trust the people that did lockdowns, i.e. governments, to punish people for lockdowns and how that doesn't really make sense and there's obviously an inherent risk? I would also point out, though, as a Christian, of course, we have to forgive, but we could forgive while still punishing. I mean, I was re-watching The Wire and the other night the guy um, is about to shoot a guy in the head. He says, I, I got you, dog. It'll, it'll be quick. He's like, I got you. He's like, he's, he's like a nice thing. He's like, I'm going to make it quick for you. I've got nothing against you, but this does have to be done. So I see it more, more like that. Yeah, he talks about forgiveness. He says uh, that um, it's not, he's not talking about forgiveness. He's not saying people have to forgive people. Um, he, he sees that as separate and something for uh, individuals to decide if they want to do. But he's talking about the, the risks and the dangers of political tribunals that try to hold people personally accountable for, for appalling policy. Yeah, it makes sense, though. I feel some listeners will be raging and saying, no, pitchforks. Sure. But 
let's do um, the next story, which is a G20 backs global vaccine passport. Sounds bad. Yeah, the latest in the saga of the pandemic treaty and the global push for digital um, ID and vaccine passport technology and anything to restrict our movement um, is here with the G20 backing the calls for digital ID and for vaccine passports, building on the supposed success of these completely useless and ineffective uh, vaccine passports um, in the last couple of years. And so the, the G20 nations at their summit have signed up to take forward this Um, this very sinister um, and insidious agenda. So bad news all round and we need to to push back. These are vaccine passports for international travel. So they're not talking about domestic um, vaccine passports um, specifically here, although obviously the technology um, is always at risk of mission creep, um, as we know from uh, the pandemic. And also, we don't want it for international travel either. It should be a basic a basic right to be travel around, not dependent on whether you have received some experimental vaccine for a bad cold. So, yeah, it's um, not, not a good development. Slightly off topic, but you just reminded me, I just saw a tweet today of someone claiming that loads of people... Di- oh, here we go. Just some person, it went sort of quite big. They got 16.5 thousand likes the last time I saw it. And someone's put, I had a friend who recently died suddenly. She had heart damage from having COVID. She was 37 and a lifelong athlete. COVID kills, the vaccine does not. I thought that was a slightly outrageous claim. But anyway, that was only tangentially related in my mind. But um, speaking of uh, heart problems, let's do this fairly disturbing but intriguing story. Why is the NHS doing fewer operations than before the pandemic? So this is not um, not good news from the NHS. It's it, the, the waiting list, as we know, 7.1 million and, and uh, set to grow even further at record levels. So you would have thought that the NHS would be working overtime to try to bring those down, doing more uh, ramping up capacity, doing more operations and more procedures, more scans, you know, trying to get people through, get those backlogs down. But in fact, it appears, Nick, that the opposite is the case case that the NHS is actually doing as doing 600,000 fewer uh, operations and uh, procedures in um, in the year and compared to before the pandemic so rather than ramping up capacity it's actually uh, doing less uh, which means that this is one of the reasons why the one of the big reasons why the waiting lists are still growing because it's not actually bringing them down it's not it's not getting more done and this is despite the fact that billions of pounds more have been put into the NHS already and of course are set to more set to be put in and in fact um, it's been noted that uh, that the number of doctors is 13 percent higher on some measures than before the pandemic as well so they are not short of money and they are not short of people it appears and yet their capacity is lower their, their output is lower um, and so no wonder their waiting lists are long record length and uh, and getting longer absolutely mad it's a socialist black hole at the heart of the country that we keep chucking money into no other country does it like this who knows why we persist with it, but there it is. And let's go on to a related bleak story. Europe faces cancer epidemic after estimated 1 million cases missed due to lockdowns. Yes, this is a Lancet commission. Uh, so, you know, never sure if you can trust a Lancet commission, but it's uh, lots of experts um, come together and said uh, one that it appears that 1 million missed cases of cancer over the over the pandemic due to people uh, not engaging with or not being able to engage, lack of access to, to healthcare and uh, 1.5 million missed cancer appointments um, and many of those, as we've heard, uh, being missed and many more cancers being caught later, so therefore lower chances of survival and more complications. Uh, so uh, we've seen those statistics also uh, reflected in the UK statistics um, on cancer as well. So 
Uh, so more uh, collateral damage, more harms from lockdowns, which has met, as many experts were warning at the time and have warned since uh, appear, are very likely to uh, do more harm, uh, well, far more harm than good. It's not clear what good they, what good in fact they do. Um, so there's, it's all harm and, uh, and it's a lot of it. Yeah. All right, let's finish on a, a climate story. And as uh, skeptics know, of course, our flat earth is cooling rapidly. And this uh, proves it again. This is South Pole hit record cold November temperatures. And I find this quite amusing because there was a clip going around on Twitter recently from Leonard Nimoy. And I think, I think it was 1979, warning of an ice age. But then, of course, we've switched. The big fear is switched to global warming. But this suggests, no, it's actually cooling again. I'm so confused, Will. Help me out. Yeah, the great global cooling scare of the uh, of mid twentieth century. Yeah, that's quickly t- turned around in the uh, in the eighties as the uh, as the temperature um, increased a bit and got everyone scared. Um, the so this so this story is that this November at the South Pole in the middle of the Antarctic has had a record low temperatures three days in a row, sixteenth, uh, seventeenth, and eighteenth of November all hit around minus 45 degrees, uh, lower than any of the other temperatures that they've recorded on record, uh, which the record starts in the middle of the uh, 20th century. So it uh, really shows, I mean, that we, we knew that Antarctica was uh, not uh, not warming, uh, like records uh, measurements show other parts of the globe maybe, but this really confirms that trend, which is completely against the alarmist uh, view that the globe is um, is getting alarmingly and catastrophically um, hotter. And this has been a huge story in the on the uh, site this week. It's um, gone viral, uh, tens of thousands uh, heading heading towards a hundred thousand uh, hits. That uh, that story. Um, so uh, it's really uh, caught the imagination because it's you know this this information as as Chris, our environment editor, notes. You know this. You know where is the coverage of this? in the mainstream media you know we, we hear about the record high temperatures uh, that confirm their narrative uh, but we don't hear about the record low temperatures that go against it yep well never let the truth spoil the mainstream media narrative all right that was good thanks will um we'll catch up with you again next week thanks for that thanks nick okay now should we move on and talk about the tory party toby there was this autumn statement the autumn stagnant i was calling it which is basically they talked about stability growth and public spending but no one could find the growth aspect hunt started to talk about we need immigration everyone was sort of getting a bit worried that this didn't sound very conservative we need more much more immigration not less and then steve barkley came out when there was this thing about this Swiss deal, we're going to go back to a Swiss deal Brexit. Then people started to worry that Brexit's going to be betrayed. Farage said the Tories need to be crushed. Sunak said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And Steve Barkley came out and said, no, it's all nonsense. Yeah, well, at one point, we did think that we would have a regular slot on the weekly Skeptic podcast um, called Pros and Cons, in which we were going to discuss the, 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 the kind of conservative things Rishi Sunak's new government had done and the not so conservative things his government had done. But I think we're going to have to abandon this slot because there just aren't really any or at least very, very few conservative things, certainly not enough for us to include a kind of pro section in a pros and cons segment every week. I mean, it's just been all cons in the past week. I mean, you mentioned the autumn statement um, and the, the, the fact that the government appears to at least be considering the possibility of a Swiss style arrangement between the UK and the EU, which isn't a great arrangement, because what what that means is, if it's anything like 
the Swiss arrangement that we basically have to, ex- we're, we have a kind of, we're part of the single market. So we have kind of, you know, frictionless trade with the EU, um, but um, we don't get any say at all over the rules um, within the EU. We just have to obey them all. So sort of the worst of all possible worlds. Um, uh, so not, not, not at all attractive and certainly not, 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 I don't think anything we could describe as a pro. But in addition, I don't know if you saw, Nick, but um, a couple of days ago, um, there was an announcement that, um, that that the negotiators at COP27, which I thought had ended, you know, a fortnight ago, um, had finally concluded um, this reparations deal. Um, and they are now going to, you know, the developing countries like Britain and the United States are now going to, they've now agreed to pay reparations to, um, you know, low income and middle income countries for the terrible colossal catastrophic harm done by industrialization um which of course has lifted billions of people out of poverty as we discussed a couple of weeks ago anyway and that that was extraordinary but um presumably rishi sunak's government even though he initially said no we're not going to do this uh, signed off on this 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 deal um so we're now committed to it it's going to be you know in the form of um binding international agreements it doesn't matter who we vote for we'll still have to pay reparations to you know china and india which has a space program etc yeah i'm pretty much done with them toby Dominic Sandbrook wrote this quite devastating piece and there was a pull quote here saying, how have 12 years of Tory rule left us with ruinous taxes, a migrant crisis and rampant wokery? And when he goes through the absolute state of everything and the NHS and everything else, compared to Cameron's initial sort of uh, pie in the sky vision, you just go, yeah, what, what is the point of the Conservative Party? And even, I've even found myself reconsidering proportional representation because I, I, I just said on Twitter, the Conservative Party must be destroyed. And I'm kind of the only thing that's stopping me is like, I, I think you're vaguely associated with the Conservative Party and maybe I'll get invited to some things and Norman <laughs> Lamont's there and I'll feel awkward. But that's the only thing holding me back because really, I just think the party has to be destroyed. Like Farage says, they have to be crushed. Maybe Reform UK is the answer. I don't know. I mean, I think they should, I said on Twitter, they should put me up as a candidate and because they want to re- win back the red wall. I'll win back Cumbria easily. But yeah, they, they're serious about getting back the red wall. What do you think the solution is? I thought your plan was to wait until the Tory party was at an even lower ebb than it is at present. Mass desertions by their loyal members. Uh, and then you join um, oh, yeah. and because there'd be so few other members, certainly very few members under 50 uh, with a northern accent that you could then just walk <laughs> into a red wall constituency and win it back for the Tory. Oh, yeah, buy low. Quite a good plan. Yeah, yeah that was my um, other plan. Maybe that's be- better. That's a more cynical plan. A, a one-man militant tendency. Um, Do you know, I've been offered to be a candidate for uh, for UKIP. I may as well just reveal this because, uh, you know, Neil Hamilton said to me at GB, "Do you want to be the deputy leader of UKIP?" And I sort of he didn't seem like he was totally joking, and I thought he's sort of he's half serious there. And then when he gave it to Rebecca Jane, I was like, "Oh yeah, not to denigrate Rebecca, I'm, I'm sure she's very good, but he, uh, I realise he's just offering it out to people at, at GB." And I maybe could have done it. And then she said to me, you should be a candidate. But my thing is that UKIP is kind of a bit of a a toxic brand these days. (laughs) Yeah, I I think, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd recommend you do that. I mean, I I once went out when Nigel Farage was still the leader of UKIP. um, He took me out to lunch um, at the Boysdale. Um, a fairly kind of laddish Scottish uh, whiskey drinking restaurant in um, Victoria. And um, and he, he tried to persuade me to become the UKIP um, education spokesman and in return offered me um, uh, a seat in the European Parliament so I could become an MEP. And he then started kind of 
trotting out the various perks, which are you know quite considerable um, back then if you were an MEP. Um, and uh, you realise they don't actually pay they, they pay a lower tax rate than than ordinary mortals if you're a member of the European Parliament. Quite extraordinary. I didn't know that. Anyway. Um, and eventually, I, I thought about this and I declined. Um, uh, but back then, you know, there was actually something that UKIP could offer you to try and induce you to join the party and, um, you know, um, take the career hit. You know, <laughs> uh, but what can they offer you? What can Neil Hamilton offer you to, to kind of uh, totally, to, to essentially set fire to your career um, uh, <laughs> and join UKIP? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not really my thing, guys. I prefer to sort of uh, maintain my thin veneer of irony and dog whistles to get my point across, although probably shouldn't announce it because then you've sort of ruined it, haven't you? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I'm just doing a joke. It's like that old Norm MacDonald joke when he said, uh, I'm a deeply closeted homosexual. And he's like, so you're saying you're gay? He's like, hey, hey, careful, buddy. I'm deeply in the closet. <laughs> uh, so, uh, guys, I'm using dog whistles. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I'm just, I know I'm, a, I'm just a, a presenter, an entertainer and comedian figure. So, no, it would be a bad thing for me. I mean, of course, Carl was in UKIP and he's my mate. And that was a very entertaining and quite odd uh, chapter in their it history. It didn't do it. It's quite an odd chapter in his history too. And I don't think it did him any favours in the long term. I mean, maybe maybe he wasn't thinking about it from that point of view. But as a kind of, I don't think it enhanced his brand. No, exactly. It caused him a lot of trouble. Although he did enjoy talking to the people and being out there on the campaign trail. It did cause him a lot of trouble. So no, I won't be joining UKIP. I'd have to leave my house immediately. I'd have to <laughs> leave London. <laughs> I'd be banned from the football team. But really, I just don't think that it's the, it, they're a great party. The funny thing about Farage is he just airs, he, he lends credibility to everything he does. It, it, whatever the Farage party is, is automatically credible. When he was in UKIP, it was a more credible party. When he moved to reform, that became the credible party. It's just the Farage party, isn't it, really? Yes. Um, and he has been talking about kind of um, uh, re-entering politics to save Brexit. Um, but as he himself, I think, has acknowledged, in the absence of PR, he's unlikely to um, get into Parliament uh, or even make much headway with a new political party. Um, and uh, but, uh, one worry I have about PR, I mean, let's say Keir Starmer wins the next general election but doesn't win an overall majority, is dependent on the Lib Dems to, um, uh, you know, um, govern um, and uh, and the Lib Dems aren't stupid enough to make the same mistake twice and don't their condition of supporting the government is not a referendum on PR but actually PR um, then we have PR um, but uh, the, the difficulty in assuming that that could lead to kind of you know greener pastures in the future from a kind of right of center point of view is that there may be a left of center um, uh, permanent majority in this country certainly if um, you know if the union remains intact, I mean, there could be, um, you know, a centre-right majority in just England. But if you include Scotland and if you include Wales and Northern Ireland, um, I think we probably do have a permanent centre-left kind of like light woke with a lowercase w progressive majority in this country. So it could it could just consign, you know, conservatives of all descriptions to complete electoral oblivion in perpetuity. I mean, yeah, Nigel Farage might have some small um, representation in the House of Commons if we had PR, but I don't think he'd be I think he'd get a sniff of actual power. Yeah, perhaps the thing to do is just vote reform just to give the Tories a bloody nose and get them back into line a bit, maybe. Perhaps that's the answer. I don't know. I still think our best hope is to um, 
assuming Rishi Sunak doesn't triumph at the next general election to uh, fight for the leader we would like to be, the leader of the party, um, uh, spend some years in opposition and um, and come back with, you know, a properly thought through uh, legislative program in, when will it be, 2029. Uh, and I, one argument for voting Tory, I mean, the, the kind of best argument has been for years that, you know, pathetic though they are, um, it's better than the alternative. And that was particularly true, obviously, when Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party. Um, but um, it, it, as, as Dominic Sandbrook pointed out um, in that piece, you know, it's hard to imagine how much worse, you know, a Labour government during the past 12 years could have been, given where we are today. I mean, would things actually be that? I mean, they'd probably be a bit worse. We'd probably be a bit more woke. Um, you know, um, the insofar as the woke are a little bit inhibited um, about their kind of bullying and suppression and attacks on people that disagree with them, <coughs> they'd probably be a bit less inhibited. But I can't imagine things would be significantly worse if we had had 12 years of Labour government. No, the budget was very much a Labour budget. I mean, Sunak says he's been chatting to Gordon Brown, or I've heard he's been chatting. It was it was put in the papers that this was an unlikely friendship. I'm like, it seems quite a likely friendship to me at the moment. And you're right. I mean, Sambert was saying, yeah, could Corbyn have been any worse? Perhaps the state would have seized your property. That might be the, the key difference. But yeah. I suppose I suppose the, I suppose the key difference is that um, uh, you know um, I can't see a Labour government letting us have a referendum on our membership of the EU. So in the absence of you know the Tories um, winning in twenty well winning in twenty fifteen, um, we wouldn't have had a referendum and we wouldn't be out of Europe. So uh, we can at least point to that as something, some straw to clutch at, even though. They're taking that away from us now too. Yeah, that assumes we are out of Europe and going to stay out, but I'm, I don't trust Hunt not to put us back in So or Sunak. So yeah, I mean, I think you've gone with the, as, as always, Toby, I've gone with the more radical solution. You've gone with the sort of not wanting to lose your lunch invites. I think that's what it comes <laughs> down to. I don't get any lunch invites, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I'm sorry to, uh, I'm sure, I know you're a man of great integrity. You're just a more moderate person. That's And that's, that's fair enough. Um, shall we go on to everyone's favourite section? Peak Woke. All right, so Toby, you were you were coming in there. Do you want to go first with uh, peak work this week? Yeah, so I'll go first. I was going to um, nominate uh, the um, Duke and Duchess of Sussex um, award, which they're going to receive on um, December the sixth. It's a Ripple of Hope award, um, and it's being awarded by um, uh, it's being awarded by um, John F. Kennedy's niece. Kerry Kennedy, um, who, uh, who, who I think, I think, as far as I know, the award is entirely in her gift, um, and she's giving it to them because um, <clears throat> she thinks they've been heroic in standing up against the structural racism of the royal family. Um, so, uh, and, and, and instead of you know telling this idiot to take a hike. Um, needless to say, Harry and Meghan ha- are going to the ceremony and they're going to, you know, uh, accept this award and no doubt make speeches about how important it is to fight racism. I mean, if they're hoping for any kind of reconciliation um, with the rest of their family, I think accepting an award for calling Prince Charles, now King Charles, a racist um, isn't really going to isn't really going to work on the kind of peace and reconciliation front. Yeah, that's a good call. Do you have any more? Because I have, I have my usual sort of slew of people. Well, my my other one was going to be um, 
uh, British footballers, uh, the England team taking the knee before the um, first game of the uh, they played in the World Cup. But um, we sort of covered that. So that that was that was that was. Um, I, I might be able to think of one while you're doing your others. Okay, because I've got loads, and I could even have more. It's but none of them are that great as my one the other week. But some of them are strong. So. Obviously, you had the, well, not obviously, but you had this woman on Good Morning Britain saying that Panto was transphobic. That was one. We had Sadiq Khan announcing the Trans Day of Remembrance, another possibility. We had a black actor playing famous conservative commentator William F. Buckley, which I thought was quite interesting, quite strange, because it's this, now you've talked about colorblind casting, and I've said it only goes one way, but that is quite, I mean, that is odd. That's when you're changing a character who, you know, is a political figure, had some quite, probably questionable views about race and you're changing him to a black person, which makes it kind of almost impossible, but it is interesting as a concept, as a, as a concept, it's interesting, but it, but it kind of was also bizarre. So I considered that, but I don't think that's quite peak woke enough. My two top ones are firstly, this uh, support bear I came across and the, the New York post shared this. It was a giant teddy bear hugging a woman and the caption is, singles can snuggle this giant emotional support bear and it doesn't snore. And I said they can. The question is whether they should <laughs> because it's just, it's just a, the idea that women can just snuggle a giant sort of weird-looking bear with trousers. Uh, and his eyes, I also wrote sadness in his eyes, referencing the famous Kay Burley thing because the bear looks kind of quite sad to be there. So very, very weird. But I think my f- top Pete Woke this week has to be the uh, young person on Libs of TikTok, and we know Libs of TikTok offers plenty of this content, but this one was, I thought, yeah, yeah, Libs of TikTok, we're all used to it now. It's ridiculous. It's pathetic. It's almost a cliche. But this one still got through my defenses as just so absurd. It was a young person who wanted to identify as an inanimate object because they hated being human so much. They didn't even want to be a gender. They just wanted to be an, a, a thing like grass, they said. And they said, so they use it, its pronouns no one else uses them, but they have requested that people use them. But they're saying it's okay. No one else uses them. And the sad thing was, this, but they didn't seem such a bad person. They seemed sort of, you know, far less nasty and toxic than a lot of those people. And you just thought, this is tragic, really. This is just a confused, sad young person. But they wanted to be an inanimate object using it, its pronouns. So that's hard to top as Pete Woke. I did have one other, actually, um, uh, which... Uh which was this story um, in The Telegraph on Sunday that Oxford University has said it's going to decolonize its computing degree courses because of slavery links to machine learning. And um, so uh, this was the quote from the head of the department, Professor Leslie Ann Goldberg. Um, We need to go beyond understanding these effects to realize that they are often rooted in a colonial past that even at its most benign sought to impose Western standards and understandings on other countries and at its worst enslaved and reduced local populations, creating divisions and hierarchies of value that are replicated in the vast data sets so often used in machine learning. So somehow she's making the argument, which I completely don't understand, that there's something racist and colonialist um, about machine learning. Um, and um, you, in order to kind of properly be taught computer science, you need to understand the links between computing and, you know, racial oppression. Um, is, is she, if she's saying that, you know, um, uh, any kind of scientific, rational approach to understanding the world or 
technology is implicitly white supremacist, then, you know, that, that's kind of an argument for not studying or using computers altogether, isn't it? It's, and it's also a bit racist um, because presumably non-white cultures did make a contribution to the history of science. So to claim it's kind of an expression of white supremacy seems to belittle the contribution of, you know, Arab civilization and other civilizations. Anyway, um, uh, it, that seemed to me to be pretty bonkers um, to decolonize computer science. I mean, you can sort of understand decolonizing the English curriculum or, you know, the history curriculum. Um, uh, but computer science, that, that seemed to be almost self-parody. I think it's between that and my inanimate object person. Um, it's very hard for me to just because I'm like Katie Hobbs overseeing the Arizona election. I'm also in it and I, and I get to oversee <laughs> it. If it was down to me, I think I'd give myself Pete Woke for the inanimate object and give you weak poke, but it's very close. Perhaps it's a draw. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that really. What do you think? Do you think you won? I think I won. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, Toby thinks uh, so. And I, I, Toby's the boss, so I guess I get weak poke. I don't <laughs> mind. I don't mind. Um, I'll just read a few reviews, Toby. We've had some amazing reviews in, and we thank you for all your reviews. And this one says, I enjoy the show. Nick's humor is great, and Toby's wittiness is unique. Then they attack you for sniffing too much but they, and, and inhaling <laughs> and breathing. But they say, apart from that, the topics and stories are brilliant. Uh, great trio, hardworking and energetic Toby Young, gently observant Nick Dixon, that's interesting, and last but not least both <laughs> articulate and numerate Will Jones what's not to like, I think that's probably an accurate description, gently observant I'm not the, not this the terrible person they all say on the left, but I want to just quickly read this one, they've called it Geezers, five star chat between a couple of smashing fellas, non-woke church is a decent shout, oh that's from last week, and anyway, anyway it talks about my host, I don't want to compliment myself again guys but he said that he was gutted to see me drop God bless after headliners on Thursday. I just want to re- reassure everyone, I'm not dropping my good night and God bless. What happened is there was a, <clears throat> a confusion where the director was saying something in my ear and I didn't understand when the show was ending. So I messed up the outro, which is the hardest bit of the show. So I didn't say my God blessing. And, and, and they wanted me to say that the repeat was coming out. So it could have been good morning. So it was all very complicated. It was purely a technical thing, guys. I will continue to say God bless, despite the fact that people, my colleagues have laughed at me on and off air in a pretty disgusting way for saying it, but I will continue to say it. And uh, so don't worry about that. I won't be cowed by these lefties. Anything to add, Toby? No, I think we should probably just um, tell people, you know, about the various things we normally promote. So please, if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoy reading The Daily Skeptic, uh, do donate. If you donate five pounds or more um, each month, you can comment beneath all the articles. But even if you can't afford that, um, every little helps. And I also wanted to um, give a quick plug for the um, Free Speech Union's Christmas special at Comedy Unleashed on December the 12th. Um, uh, Simon Evans will be there, Mary Bork, uh, Lee Hurst, and Bobby Davro is <laughs> the MC for the evening. Uh, tickets, I think, uh, start at £20. Um, should be a lot of fun. I'll be there. Come and say hi at the bar if you if you, if you you go. Um, and if you want a ticket to that, just go to the Free Speech Union website, freespeechunion.org, click on events, and you can then click through to Eventbrite and buy yourself a ticket. Absolutely. And subscribe to my Substack, nickdixon.substack.com. And, you know, leave us a five-star review if you're so inclined. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. Stay sceptical. That's a new thing I've come up with. (laughs) Bye. Brilliant.